Hey Real Beasts, it's Ben here to tell you a couple of things with a bit of a special introduction. One is that there was an audio snafu towards the end of this episode, which is the third in our series about Jurassic Park, where we did conclude our discussion. However, that conclusion doesn't exist on tape, at least for me. And that's actually okay for a couple of reasons. One is that this episode was long enough as it was, and I think we have plenty to chew on. And two, we kind of ran out of steam towards the end of this episode, in my opinion, because we were giving a play-by-play, scene-by-scene of this iconic movie, and I think some of our most fruitful discussions were happening when we deviated from that path, and we talked a bit about things that interested us about the science and the majesty of this film that weren't to do with what's going on in the screenplay line-by-line. So I think it taught us a thing or two about what we can change for next time and how we can improve our content to make it more entertaining. And speaking of your content feed, I also wanted to say that we acknowledge there's been some gaps in our normal bi-weekly release schedule due to our academic schedules. But I recognize this is how things in the creative field tend to fizzle and die. But in the words of Dr. Grant, that's not what I'm going to do. We have plenty of plans. We will steer the real beast ship back towards consistency. And we have lots of films and ideas for segments to come very soon. So it's going to be a real beast-filled summer of 2021. We can't wait to bring that content to you and hopefully entertain you along the way. So please enjoy this partial episode of Jurassic Park. And I think that we'll come back sometime later and talk through the iconic raptors in the kitchen scene on its own as a mini episode. So when our audio cuts out, I will also give a voiceover to let you know what's going on. And we'll catch you on the flip side. Thanks. And we are rolling. Excellent. Uh, Well... Uh, hello everyone welcome to part three of our long form episode on jurassic park (laughs) we've been talking about this movie for weeks and weeks because well we love it it's a spectacular movie it's great on dino front it's great on filmmaking front it's just excellent ben where are we in the story of jurassic park at this point we are sort of in act two and three quarters and Dr. Grant has <laughs> yeah. just fished Tim out of a tree. They have survived the wreckage of the vehicle chasing them down out of said tree. And now we have to catch up with where the other characters are in this attempted rescue and the kind of this is where the survival portion of Jurassic Park really kicks in in earnest, where we have to get these folks to A, survive, and B, get the hell off this island. That's right. That's the name of the game here and ends up being the name of the game for every subsequent Jurassic Park movie as well. Get the (laughs) hell out of Dodge. Um, By the way, this is Real Beasts that you're listening to. (laughs) I forgot to mention the name of our podcast. This is Real Beasts. I'm David. My fellow here is Ben. Yes. All right. Well, let's get started. So, like you said, we finished the tree. Dr. Grant got Tim out of the tree. They're with Lex, but they're kind of stuck in the wilderness. Cut to 
the wreckage, the scene of the crime where the Tyrannosaurus Rex has left its paddock and... Tyrannosaurus wreckage, you might say. (laughs) Well, I don't know what I would do without you, honestly, Ben. (laughs) (laughs) So we have a bit of a mess on our hands, literally, in this moment. This is when Muldoon, our big game hunter man, and... Uh, Laura Dern, who plays Dr. Ellie Sattler. The two of them have arrived at the scene of the crime, and they find uh, Gennaro all over the place. Gennaro's been eaten by a Tyrannosaurus wreckage. Yeah, and there's the great line, I think this was Gennaro. I think this was too. Yeah, it's fantastic. There's pieces of Gennaro everywhere. They roll up to the scene. (laughs) There's a car missing, which is never a good sign, and they have no clue where Dr. Grant and the kids are. Mm-hmm. They start shouting for him, and then they find Dr. Ian Malcolm, who's also been injured, but not nearly as bad as the the lawyer, Gennaro, has been. Um, and Dr. Malcolm, I guess he's got like a leg wound, or it's not really clear how he's hurt, but he's hurt. He's wounded somehow. Yeah, you know, he was kind of thrown the through the bathroom time, by when the I, Rex. Finally, when I watched this movie in this particular watch through, I finally understood what I was looking at, because I saw his belt way down on his leg and i'm like is that where jeff goldblum's waist is is his waist at his knee (laughs) what's going on with this guy's morphology but it turned out that no i was being super silly and the issue was he had made a tourniquet out of his belt and that's That's what and i completely didn't understand what i was looking at for the last 27 years of my life and now in year 28 i finally got it he, yeah, I mean, I, I actually did not realize it even rewatching it this time. So <laughs> that's good to know. He had a tourniquet. Fun fact about David, I'm very paranoid. And every time I go hiking, I pack a belt in my backpack just in case. Really? I fall down the mountain and break my leg and need what? a tourniquet of some sort. Wow. Yeah, every time. I don't think it's actually going to ever be necessary. But hey, if it ever is... And I have to 127 hours myself. Oh my gosh! At least Damn, I've got dude. a belt to help. Holy out. cow! <laughs> wow, that's remarkable. So call me Jeff Goldblum. Um, <laughs> Gladly. Then we hear the T Rex roar, don't we? Yeah. So the T Rex is out. It could be anywhere, and <laughs> they're still looking for the other car. Ellie is yelling for Alan, and her voice is so hoarse in this scene. It always struck mm-hmm. me as actually. Really good acting. Yeah, her voice Laura just Dern like, brings ah! it. And her just voice yeah. is just so raspy. And uh, <laughs> and she finally looks over the edge of the cliff where the torn fence is. And she says, mm-hmm. the other car. And so she spotted it with her uh, flashlight. Cut to the bottom of the hill instantly. And they look at the downed other explorer. And they see the footprints headed out. Mm-hmm. So they know that there are survivors, at least to the point of that crashed car. That's right. And then we cut back to uh, Dr. Malcolm, who's up in the gas-powered Jeep that Dr. Sattler and Muldoon used to get out to this this mess, this Tyrannosaurus wreckage. <laughs> and we have a moment where he's just kind of sitting. He's hurt. He's wounded. He's sitting in the Jeep waiting for them to get back up from uh, finding the Explorer down, Ian down the cliff. Ian Malcolm sitting in a Jeep. <laughs> talking about some chaos theory yeah That's a little stretch anyway we have another fun moment of the 
footsteps of the T-Rex being the first thing that we hear. Another great example of Spielberg's ability to create tension without showing us what we need to be tense yeah, about. Yeah, he creates tension I this time it. with surface tension. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, actually. We see there's a puddle in the T-Rex's footprint, and we see the water vibrating, just like the cup in the in the car earlier. But it's, a, it's another example of that. And so we obviously, of course, know, uh-oh, Big Daddy you know T-Rex. Or actually, Big Mama T-Rex. It's an impact hey, tremor is what it is. recording on Mother's Day, by the way. Happy Mother's oh, Day. Oh, yes. Happy Mother's uh, Day to all the dinosaurs with Jurassic Park that reproduced uh, using amphibian DNA. Exactly, yes. We'll get, to, we'll get to T-Rex moms in the next Jurassic Park oh, we movie. we sure will. <laughs> um, but so obviously, Dr. Malcolm is freaking out. So he's like, ah, come on, come on. Oh, wait, no, he has a moment where he's talking to himself. He goes, anybody hear that? You know what that is? It's an impact tremor is what it is. I'm fairly alarmed here. Starts frantically calling to the others. Come on, we have to get out of here. We have to go now, now, right now, let's go. And when Dr. Sattler and Muldoon emerge from the forest, the T-Rex is like two feet behind them. So like, yeah, I don't know how right they there. didn't know it was on its tail. That's a little bit weird. <laughs> That's but, a good point. <laughs> I mean, the T-Rex is clomping around. And here's the thing that still strikes me is like, the T-Rex's footprints during these water scenes are like mm -hmm. one footprint every like four seconds. It's just like, boom. Boom. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. and then anytime you actually see it moving around, you know, it's just kind of walking around normally with steps all the time. So yeah. it's just, it's boom, funny to boom, think about boom, like, boom. it's like, you know what would be cool for the Spielberg <laughs> film? If I just kind of like stood around and like stomped really hard and made Jeff Goldblum yeah. really nervous. But it's a fantastic, I mean, Spielberg creates a callback an iconic callback in the midst of his own film that's only like 25 minutes apart. Like, yeah, think about that. It's, he, it's pretty astounding. It's and amazing. Then he, and then he goes on and, and creates another iconic moment in this movie, which is when the, the they, they jump in the Jeep, they're driving away. They've got Malcolm in the back. It's Muldoon. It's I Malcolm, Muldoon in the is driving. Malcolm, yeah, Malcolm in the middle. Uh, Muldoon's driving. Sattler's in the passenger seat. And then the T-Rex is chasing them through the woods. And we have this awesome moment when we see the T-Rex through the rearview mirror. And we see written on the rearview mirror, it says, objects in mirror are closer than they appear. <laughs> and it's just so funny oh, yeah. and great. And, of course, we see that emulated in uh, Toy Story 2, uh -huh. I believe, yep, later. With the uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex named Rex chasing after them so in a Barbie funny. car. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. And brilliant. Dr. Malcolm here is freaking out because the T-Rex, of course, is breathing down everyone's neck. And he's yeah. <laughs> leaning back on the gear stick that Muldoon is trying to use so they can't get out of low gear. So this car, mm -hmm. this Jeep, which is not particularly fast anyway, is zooming along. And here's where we also get to realize something that was placed in at the start of the film, which is when Hammond unsolicitedly said, we clocked the T-Rex at 32 miles an hour. Right in the mm -hmm. scene with the Brachiosaurus. And now we get to see the T-Rex untap its running potential. And this yeah. scene was really tough for the animators because you have to get this massive, you know, seven, eight, nine ton animal to look like it can run as fast as a Jeep. And they had to create some optical illusions to make this possible because they couldn't really pull it off. Like, it turns out that mm -hmm. it kind of looked physically wrong. And so they did some kind of perspective trickery to make this big animal look like it was going that fast. But... Anyway, they duck under a tree that breaks the windshield. The T-Rex is on their tail. Finally, after the, after Malcolm kind of lifts himself up off the stick, 
Muldoon accelerates into the distance. And you know what the best part of this scene is, David? What is it, Ben? It's when Muldoon looks back as he's hitting the gas and he smirks. Because that, yep. if that wasn't just one of the most epic moments of his life, despite it being death-defying, <laughs> I just love the idea that this guy is like, you know what? That was kind of fucking awesome. Yeah, and that happens multiple times for Muldoon. He just kind of enjoys the adrenaline. It becomes very clear, especially later in the movie. We really see he just lives for this kind of adventure, and it's it's pretty dope. He's a great character. So next we cut back to Dr. Grant, Lex, and Tim, and they're kind of wandering through Jurassic Park, and we hear another roar in the distance, which we can assume is the T-Rex. Um, and they, they keep moving, and they, they end up deciding that they want to climb a tree, which I think is a pretty smart idea. But Ben, I actually have a, a, a scientific question for mm-hmm. you. Do we know if dinosaurs were able to climb trees or, or, or something like that. Of course, there were certainly dinosaurs that I'm sure were able to get into trees using feathers, gliding or flying into treetops and things like that. But do we know if dinosaurs were able to like climb sort of like we know mammals today can do, like monkeys and, and other animals? That's a really good question. There are some clues that we can take from the shape of claws and also just general analysis of biomechanics so a Uh lot of those bird-like dinosaurs that you were talking about probably were decent climbers too at least some of them and Mm -hmm. there was actually some work by someone here at davis who just got his phd and sort of classifying the different ways extinct animals might have used their claws by creating kind of this morpho space where he studied Mm -hmm. modern animal claws and all the different ways that they function, like grasping, pinning, climbing, and Mm -hmm. looking for the key measurements you can take that basically define those different categories. So if you can be really confident about those key measurements in the modern animals that you can observe today, then you can kind of create these set of parameters where if you look at an extinct animal, take those same key measurements, you can plot them and say, oh, this looks like a grasper. This looks like a pin, pinning prey animal. This looks like a climber. Mm -hmm. So it looks Mm -hmm. like there were animals, and I'm not going to speak to specifically his publication on that because I'm not sure how it pertains to climbing in particular. It's mostly to do Mm -hmm. with types of predation. But based on the body shape, it seems pretty likely that some small theropods would have been decent climbers, not all of them, but mm-hmm. they have the biomechanical kind of architecture to be able to do it just fine. And in fact, one of the right. coolest hypotheses for how flight evolved is something called wing-assisted inclined running. So, What on earth does that mean? Yes. So uh, <laughs> we're getting... Uh, we're, we're going to threaten to make this episode long by going into this scientific topic, but I think it's worth it because it's super cool. If you, Let's do it. If you're yeah, a I'm gliding excited. animal, there's been so much research devoted to how did flight evolve in dinosaurs. And the vast majority of it was like, okay, well, you stand on the edge of something tall where you stand in a tree and you jump off and you glide. And then eventually you start flapping and then you fly, right? Great. Solved. Mm-hmm. But if you think of any... Makes sense. If you think of any gliding animal today like gliding lizards or flying squirrels. There is no flight stroke. In fact, if they were to flap, that would probably make them fall faster because 
Their mm. gliding ability is reliant on them keeping their arms pretty still and just exposing that big surface area of skin to the air as they go down. So it kind of creates a lot of air resistance and they get some some lift, but they're not capable of powered flight and there's no flight stroke. So they never develop that chest powered flight stroke because all they're doing is mm -hmm. gliding. So from a dinosaur perspective, how do you get the flight stroke? And one of the coolest hypotheses in my opinion is that we think about needing to fly as being like a one or a zero in uh, like a computer code. It's like they either can fly or they can't. And if you can't fly, mm -hmm. then you can't do anything. And if you can fly, then you can fly. But it's much more nuanced than that. And if you can get some lift, but you still can't fly on your own, that might be enough to create an adaptive advantage that would be selected for. And what we see mm -hmm. that is in baby birds that can't fly yet, they can actually climb surfaces that are steeper than they would be able to otherwise by flapping their wings, even though they can't fly, and getting some lift. So they can climb up really right. steep trees, really steep rocks that they ordinarily wouldn't be able to get up to. So one of the hypotheses is either through display or to escape predators or to catch prey, we had small theropods that had wing feathers. And again, that might have been because of mating displays or other reasons unrelated to flight, but we don't mm -hmm. know or thermoregulation mm -hmm. or species identification. And they started to actually flap their arms in order to get just a little bit of lift to climb a little bit faster and better. And over time, that encourages the flight stroke. So it's an advantage already, even in transition. And eventually yeah. you get powered flight because now the chest muscles and the sternum and the feathers are adapted for lift and a flight stroke. Whereas if you were a glider, you might never make that step. So. That is a distinct possibility as to the origins of flight in dinosaurs. That's absolutely fascinating. And I, and I guess that makes sense that it's it's aiding in the jumping or the climbing, but it's not it's not flight on its own because they don't have the strength, the muscles, the bone structure, the fl the flight feathers mm -hmm. to be able to get enough lift to actually fly. Mm -hmm. But they are able to kind of jump higher than they otherwise would because they have sort of proto wings exactly is that yeah yes. have a yeah, handle on that exactly and that's so fascinating it doesn't have to just be like you know flight or bust you have mm -hmm. you now have a mechanism that throws in something that can be an advantage for these organisms to have mm -hmm. along the process that sets the ball rolling towards powered flight so that's why right. that hypothesis appeals to me quite a bit yeah, it sort of reminds me of in, in terms of humans as as bipedal animals, meaning we we walk on two legs. It means we uh, like to buy lots of pedals. <laughs> we we sure do. Um, it it makes me think of like if if you looked at a baby human, <laughs> and we're like, well, this thing cannot run. That seems obvious, right? And running is clearly an, an, an advantage in a survival scenario. But this baby can crawl, which is a step towards running. <laughs> but it doesn't look at all like running. And then eventually they can walk. And then eventually they can jog. And eventually they can run. You know, that kind of thing. So I, I can totally see how... You know, this is one human developing over the course of their life as they as they grow up. But in terms of the evolution of a species, it seems like there are it, it makes sense that there would be multiple steps along the way to powered flight before it actually looks like, oh, this 
this dinosaur, this bird can just lift off the ground and fly away. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and those that's, changes in, that's in a human development or any organism's development through its life history is called ontogeny. And we'll talk more about that when we have Ooh. films that spend more time with young and baby dinosaurs because that's pretty uh -huh. neat stuff too. But before we get too long-winded, let's get back to the tree that Grant likes <laughs> in Timberland. Oh, boy. So they're climbing up this tree. I think it's a very good idea that Dr. Grant has here. You know, most of these carnivorous dinosaurs are probably not going to be climbing these trees. So it's as safe as anything mm -hmm. I could think of. And as they're in the tree, they can hear the s kind of sonorous, lovely tones of some brachiosaurus <laughs> in the distance. And I love how Tim correctly identifies them. For He's like, look at those brontosauruses. I mean, uh, uh, brachiosauruses. And, you know, they're all communicating to themselves. And Dr. Grant goes and emulates this noise by cupping his hands and going, <laughs> that was that was pretty good, Ben. <laughs> and then the brachiosauruses sing back, and then you know Lex is uh pretty freaked out. Don't let the monsters come over here. And here's one of my favorite lines in the film: "They're not monsters, Lex. They're just animals. Those are herbivores." And in stark contrast to a line in Jurassic Park three, this is one of the coolest things Jurassic Park does. Is it? You know these dinosaurs are scary, but they're not villains. They're villains mm -hmm. because we might want them to be because it's fun, but ultimately they're just animals and they're just living. Mm -hmm. And I think that that yeah. deconstructs dinosaurs in a lovely way and in a way that affects a lot of you know aspiring paleontologists. It's like, you know what? At the end of the day, we can understand these things because they're animals. They're not monsters. And that means we mm -hmm. can know a thing or two about them. And I think there's so much in that line that I love. Yeah. I really love that, too, because it kind of shows us that in this movie, even though the dinosaurs sort of serve as sort of the antagonists of the story, they're not villains. And I like that you say that. They're definitely not evil. If there's a villain in this movie, I guess it would be, I don't know, capitalism. Yeah, it's like <laughs> it's, it's greed, greed and hubris. <laughs> but yeah, there isn't really a, a like an overarching villain. There's certainly situations that are dangerous there's there's obstacles to overcome but yeah and, and i agree with you i think it's really cool to think about even the most dangerous animals on the planet they're just animals they're just doing their thing to try and survive and if you think about creatures in the natural world in that way i think that it's it it serves as a much more profound way of of connecting to the other life that exists on this planet because you know, when we talk about dinosaurs a lot, it's hard to it's hard for us to think about how we are living on the same earth that those dinosaurs lived on. Mm -hmm. And they did all the same things that all the animals of today do. They eat, they have sex, they have offspring and those offspring eat and have sex and also have offspring, you know, and the cycle goes on. And that's what's been happening on Earth for hundreds of millions of years and it just depends on what form that life takes and i think it's it's very profound and i love i agree with you i love that this movie kind of dips into that kind of idea of like hey they're just animals even though we are definitely fearful of that t-rex and we should be he's not evil he's not malicious he's just hungry and we are very easy prey <laughs> yes definitely yeah easy pickings in fact so easy and so small relative to t-rex that T-Rex might not really have bothered 
with a human being. But mm-hmm. I digress, and we yeah. both digress, I suppose. And yeah. so they're safe in the tree. They sing to the brachiosaurs. And, you know, now there's a little bit of time for reflection. Lex asks Dr. Grant what he and Ellie are going to do if they're out of a job. He doesn't know. Mm-hmm. They'll just have to evolve, too. And Tim tells some little adorable dinosaur jokes that, you know, it's very endearing and perhaps set the seed for my pun making in some subconscious way. (laughs) I think definitely. I love this moment because Spielberg, it became very famous for inventing the summer blockbuster movie, right? Jaws is sort of considered the first summer blockbuster. Big action-packed it's a bombastic story it is released in the summer and it makes a bunch of money it's very popular that's kind of the idea behind a summer blockbuster in in the modern age usually summer blockbusters have a lot of cgi a lot of action and very little else mm-hmm. um i think the meg which we did an episode yeah. on is a good example of the kind of blo- summer blockbuster movies that we get a lot of uh today Sure, there can be an interesting plot, but is it profound? Maybe not so much. Uh, But a movie like this in Jurassic Park, Spielberg actually takes time to have quiet moments, which is not something that many summer blockbusters of the of of today's world, you know, 20, what are we, 28 years out from the release of Jurassic Park. Mm -hmm. uh, We don't see that as often anymore. We still do see it sometimes in some of the best blockbusters and the best action movies. Um, But we don't see it that often. And I love that he is willing to take the time to have this sweet moment between Dr. Grant, who we established at the beginning of this movie. Dr. Grant hates kids. He doesn't give a shit about them. He thinks they're annoying and smelly and gross. And now suddenly he is taking care of these two kids and is doing it in stride. And we're seeing an evolution of his character over the course of this movie. And it's, it's very important. And I think this scene and the next scene are sort of the end of act two. I, I, I believe. Yeah. So uh, just like Muldoon, we better um, hit the the gear stick here and accelerate away (laughs) from the impending T-Rex of going long in the podcast doom. But this next scene is exactly what you talked about. In fact, to me, the next scene, which is where, they're in the restaurant in Jurassic Park, and Hammond is sitting there eating all the ice cream that's melting because the power's off. That means the fridges are offline. Thanks, Nedry. And the freezers are offline. And <laughs> Dr. Sattler comes in and joins them. At this point, Dr. Sattler still doesn't know if Dr. Grant and the kids are alive. She has no clue. But they're you know back in, mm-hmm. the, in the main visitor center. Hammond's there looking very wistful. And this is honestly the part B to the lunchtime scene because it's where Mm -hmm. all the stuff that Malcolm and Dr. Grant and Dr. Sattler were warning him about, all of that's come to fruition. He's sitting there Mm -hmm. reflecting on this entire situation. The dream is not dead in his eye, but it's an ember. And he Mm -hmm. wants, you know, he has this moment of connection (laughs) with, with Dr. Sattler because they're there and he's just reminiscing on how things even got to this point. I mean, yeah. he talks about how he used to make flea circuses, you know, yeah, all these little right. tiny things. Youth. And and you can see, you know, he's this is brilliant, brilliant acting by Richard Attenborough as he digs mm-hmm. back into his mind and draws upon this experience that he had as a younger man 
And he's like, I wanted to make something real here at Jurassic Park, something people could see and touch. And it's really speaking to the dream that he's had realizing this mm -hmm. and how has it all gone so wrong? But then the hubris comes back because as Ellie is kind of, you know, just being a sounding board for him, he's like, you know, hiring Nedry was a mistake. I can see that now. And, you know, all these things. Yeah. He's trying to point to these individual moments. And Dr. Sattler's yeah. like, no, the whole thing is the lesson. You never had control. It was an illusion. Yeah. You can't have control over nature. There's no way. We are a part of nature. We are nature. We are birthed from this earth. We consume what we need to from the earth. And we die and we go back into the earth. There's no way to have control over nature even though humans love to pretend and think that we might be able to. But yeah, and I love this moment because Dr. Sattler is kind of the moral uh, compass of, of this moment in the story. And I love that she she just calls him out. She calls him out on his bullshit. You never had control. That's the illusion. It's, it's great because she both kind of goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with him but also is very human and recognizes that he is hurting and he's worried about his grand kill grand grandchildren grandchildren <laughs> <laughs> and um so she's like you know they're out there people are dying you can't be thinking about how you're gonna make this park better the next time when your grandkids are still out there and then she starts eating the ice cream and she goes it's good and he just hammond quietly goes spared no expense oh, because he didn't he spared brilliant. no expense and yet it still all oh, went wrong yes <laughs> so another like lovely quiet scene but that one actually escalates into some emotion and mm -hmm. i think that both richard attenborough and laura dern just kill it in that scene i mean it's yeah. just incredible and i am i am a, an enormous laura dern fan always will be and this is one of her one of my favorite moments of her acting career. It's just it's great. Yeah, phenomenal stuff and it humanizes both characters and it mm -hmm. gives us great insight into Hammond being confronted by the starkness of the reality that he's facing mm -hmm. and the collapse of the dream. And yeah. It's hard to watch. I mean, it's very sad, but also, you know, he cut corners and that's what happens in this case. Yeah, so. he, he dug his own grave, so to speak. And yeah. well, he dug other people's graves. He hasn't died yet, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's fascinating. And then we move on into, I think, act three in earnest. Mm -hmm. I'd say that this is sort of the, 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 the start of act three. We cut back to Dr. Grant and Tim and Lex, who are just waking up in the morning uh, they're still up in the branch of the of the tree, and the kids are curled up under Dr. Grant's arms. It's a perfect visual representation of how Dr. Grant is changing because of this story, which is which is it's, it's awesome. It's great. Yeah. Um, the brachiosauruses are very close by. One of them is like bites uh, some some leaves off of a tree branch that's like, you know, a, a couple of feet away from them, and it wakes up Lex and Tim, and Lex screams. She's scared, and Tim is like, it's a veggie-saurus. Don't worry, it's a veggie-saurus. <laughs> and then they have a nice moment where they're, you know, like handing tree branches to the Brachiosaurus, and they're kind of playing tug-of-war with him. Well, I have a couple then, things to say about the science of this scene, David. 
Oh, I, hell yeah. Really let's, quick. Let's go. So this Brachiosaurus's head is way too big. I mean, really? So Brachiosaurus is an enormous dinosaur. It got a big head. But sauropod dinosaurs have very tiny heads compared to their bodies. <laughs> so this Brachiosaurus head is way too big. But perhaps even more importantly, it's chewing with a side-to-side motion like a cow. And literally, Dr. Grant says, you can think of it as a kind of a big cow. Well, yeah. you really can't because... <laughs> Why not? Because cows spend so much of their damn time chewing. And you know something that Brachiosaurus didn't do? Chew. At all? No. So they, instead, their teeth are kind of shaped like spoons. And they're just kind of raking plant material and stripping the leaves and branches off of plants and then just swallowing it whole. And they have such a massive gut that probably had gastroliths in it, little stones that they swallowed to help them break down food. So they weren't doing oral processing. So all the chewing, particularly that side-to-side chewing motion, that was definitely not happening in sauropod dinosaurs. Oh, that I see, I didn't even I didn't even think to ask you about that because <laughs> I just assumed, yeah, of course these dinosaurs, they're they're herbivores, they eat leaves. You got to grind that up. That's that's hard to digest. Plant fibers is hard to digest. They sure are. So that's fascinating. So they probably, you said they probably swallowed stones to help grind it up once it was in their stomach. We have evidence of several sauropods doing that. I don't know if we have direct evidence for Brachiosaurus specifically, but we do find in the abdominal area of fossils of other sauropods, rounded, smooth stones that we infer to be gastroliths, which are basically just rocks swallowed to assist with mechanical grinding of food material so as the stomach is churning around those stones basically just provide it's like a mortar and pestle inside of the body of the animal so it just mechanically breaks down the plants in a way that their mouths are not adapted to do and because they have such big guts they can you know ferment that shit for a long time and get the nutrients out and it doesn't really matter too much if they can chew it now later on in the dinosaur history we have the evolution of very complex chewing mechanisms and that mm-hmm. facilitated the rise of the ornithopod dinosaurs, the iguanodons and duck-billed dinosaurs of the world. But for sauropods, mm. they weren't chewing. So, uh, now remind me, was Brachiosaurus a Cretaceous dinosaur, or were they Jurassic? They were late Jurassic. They were late Jurassic. Okay, so did sauropods ever evolve the ability to chew? Not as far as or I know. Or did they... Oh, yeah, interesting. they always okay. they kept well, so they so they had some of them had different shaped teeth and some of them had really weird tooth and jaw morphologies. But as far as I know, not a single one has adaptations for jaw occlusion. There's no chewing surface or necessity for the jaw to like close in a way that the teeth were grinding against one another. Right. There's an animal called Nigerosaurus that has a really weird, very, very broad, flat bill for perhaps cropping or per maybe even like I guess it looks relatively similar to some animals that almost like filter feed but it's such a big uh, animal that I think that that's probably not what it was doing but it has a really hmm. wide flat snout which is looks bizarre but besides that <laughs> basically most sauropod teeth are kind of spoon or spade shaped and they're just stripping plant material but they're not chewing it no oral processing fascinating and i and i know from my time working at the academy of sciences when we talk about uh tooth 
um, I guess morphology is the word I'm looking for. Flat teeth that have a flat top, flat crown, mm -hmm. are great for grinding up plant material. So for our listeners at home, you can think of your molars, the back of your, your, back of your mouth. Those are good grinding teeth, right? That's what we use to chew mm -hmm. our food with. And then there are uh, sharper cutting teeth like our incisors and the teeth at the front of our mouth. We are omnivores, so we have both sets of teeth. But when we're talking about Brachiosaurus specifically, they don't have molars and then differently shaped teeth in other parts of their mouth, right? They all have same shaped teeth going throughout their entire jaw. Is that true? Yes, and that's true of almost all reptiles. There are some exceptions. In fact, there's even, oh. a, there's even a dinosaur that's named for this feature. But mammals are kind of famously heterodont in their dentition, which means that we have different shaped teeth in different parts of our mouths. But most mm -hmm. other groups of animals have homodont dentition, so the same shaped tooth all over their mouth. Like if you look in a crocodile's mouth, all the teeth are conical. If uh -huh. you look in the mouth of an iguana, all the teeth are kind of like sharp leaf shaped and yeah, so yeah. that's a heterodont dentition and that is the vast majority of dinosaurs there's actually a dinosaur called heterodontosaurus because they're like look this dinosaur has heterodont dentition let's call it heterodontosaurus so <laughs> it does happen in a few select species but sauropods same shaped teeth all through their mouths and the thing about that thing you're talking about with like flat teeth for grinding plants sharp teeth for meat that is kind of an oversimplification because a lot mm -hmm. of herbivores slice plant material with sharp teeth, but the type uh. of sharpness that they have, it's kind of like those scissors, those like funky scissors that have like the wavy pattern or like the big serrations. Oh, yeah. It's like for, yeah, yeah, yeah. you can create a shearing surface with like really big serrations that are actually bigger than the serrations that we typically see in carnivores. So there's like a, a way to distinguish them between those from carnivores, even if they're still technically pretty sharp. Oh, that's fascinating. Okay, interesting. Well, that's that's great to know because in this moment in the movie, uh, this moment's basically bullshit, or at least in terms of how they represent <laughs> yeah, this Brachiosaurus. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> yeah, this, this honestly might be one of the most scientifically inaccurate moments in the whole film. Wow. Eat your heart out, fans. Anyway, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna keep saying this probably till the end of the episode, and even this inherently takes its own time. But boy, are we dwelling on these scenes? It's really great. Yeah, it's, it's fun. Uh, but I'm getting concerned about the uh, the, the it, <laughs> our runtime. Yeah, it's like there's a. If we imagine David, perhaps this will raise the stakes. If we imagine that there is a Mount Everest sized asteroid hurtling towards Earth, if we don't finish Jurassic Park in this episode, maybe that'll encourage us to up the up the pace here but these are also yeah. these are great conversations they are and they and honestly this is one of those movies that there's so much to unpack every scene has something that's both great to talk about why it works in terms of filmmaking and also what's going on scientifically it's just it's one of those movies i think that we'll we'll get to several of them in in our real beasts history but this is just you know this is one of those movies we got we got a lot to say about it so anyway, back to the film. Uh, they're, they're sitting in the tree. Brachiosaurus is, is chewing ugh, <laughs> nearby. And then they, they're like, it looks like it has a cold. And then there's a moment where Lex is like kind of brave. And she's like, oh, Dr. Grant says, think of it as a big cow, which he shouldn't have said now that we know. Lex goes, I like cows. And she tries to pet it. And it sneezes all this mucus on her. And it's a funny, silly stupid moment and it works because this movie's great and then 
They get down from the tree, and a very important moment happens. Mm -hmm. They discover something at the bottom of the tree. Ben, what do they find? They find eggshells. Bum, bum, bum. Eggshells. But wait a second. All of these dinosaurs were female, according to B.D. Wong. How could this be? Yeah, Tim's like, but my grandpa said all the dinosaurs were girls. And Dr. Grant goes, amphibian DNA. And he has this... His eyes light up. I this is this is where like I the best part about Dr. Grant's character is that he just can't help himself sometimes. He's in a life and death situation, but I'd like to think I mean, I've not been in a in a life threatening situation, but I've had <laughs> medical situations where I've had all sorts of stuff going on and I find that like something that I'm proud of is that I always crack jokes with the medical teams that I'm working with. I mean, I've been sat there in all sorts of procedures, cracking jokes, and I feel like it's just like, you know what? Sometimes you just got to, like, be in the moment and realize mm -hmm. that it's okay to have wonder and curiosity about what's going on, no matter what circumstance that you're in. His eyes yeah. light up because he puts the pieces together, and he realizes that the frog DNA used to fill the sequence gaps in the genes provided this ability that these modern amphibians have to change their sexes from male to female in a single sex environment. And now the dinosaurs could do it too. So this is a classic single sex environment. Now, when he talks about the West African frog, that's changing sex from male to female. In this case, it's female to male. But we also know of cases of this happening too, like at the Academy of Sciences, the square spot antheist yes. fish, sequential yeah. hermaphroditism, when the single male in a particular group of fish dies, then the largest female transitions into male. So we have a similar situation going on with these dinosaurs. Life found a way, Malcolm was right, and these dinosaurs yeah. are breeding. And you know who it was? You can tell which dinosaur was breeding here. Do you know how you could tell, David? How can you tell? Because when he looks at those tiny footprints leading out of this nest of eggs, they only have two toes on the ground. And there's only <gasps> one dinosaur in Jurassic Park that only has two toes on the ground. And what dinosaur is that? Velociraptor. It's the Velociraptor because it's holding its raptorial claw yes. off the ground. What a dope scene. It's amazing. And yet again, Spielberg is brilliant at this, creating tension without showing us what is making us tense. The, again, we're deep into Act 3 at this point, and we still have yet to actually see a Velociraptor. Aside from the one that hatches out of the egg in the lab earlier... And we kind of can see glimpses of them attacking the guy at the very beginning of the movie. We see them eat a cow, or at least we are around that area when they're eating the cow. And now footprints of velociraptors, but still we have not seen them. Uh, next, we're back in the control room. Arnold, played by uh, Samuel L. Jackson. He's basically trying to figure out what's going on. They're, they're trying to figure out, is it worth shutting down the entire system so that they can reboot everything because Nedry has used his IT skills to basically fuck everything up so hard that they might have to shut yeah, the entire system they're, down. They're left with no option, really, and Hammond is like, we've mm -hmm. got to shut down the system, but Ray Arnold here is very concerned because, you know, mm -hmm. at least they're there with lights on in the control room, and he's afraid that if they shut it down and it doesn't come back online, the whole thing is screwed. But, I mean, mm -hmm. other than that... There's really nothing that they can do. They'd have to go through all the lines of code one by one, and there's two million of them. And it's yeah. just 
impossible. So they have this little back and forth, but we've never shut down the system. Shutting down the system is the only way to wipe out everything that he did. Anyway, all this stuff. And <laughs> and so, uh, you know, eventually they have to get to it. This is where Muldoon talks about, what about the Lysine contingency? We could put that into effect. Yeah. And genuinely, David, even within the fictional confines of Jurassic Park, I don't know what that looks like in this case. All the dinosaurs uh -huh. are already out. They're already not feeding them. How can you put the light scene contingency into effect? It's like there's nothing yeah. they can do. What are they like? They can't press a button and make them all die instantly from that. Like it's just yeah. a deficiency in their bodies. Also, another thing, hearkening back to episode one, we talked about how the light scene contingency is bullshit anyway. But dude, <laughs> the reasons why the reason why it's especially bullshit is that nobody can synthesize lysine in their own bodies. Everyone has to get it from their own diet. It's an essential amino <laughs> acid. And I realized that the lysine contingency is just what every animal has. Every single animal gets it from their diet. Nobody can synthesize it just um, inside their own bodies. So we're in the lysine contingency ourselves, David. Oh, God. Well, that means that we're going to have to hold on to our butts. We sure will. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That's actually very interesting. I didn't realize that that all we all need lysine and we all get it from our diet. Yeah, so there's really so, no way for them to implement that. If you want to learn more about what that is, go back to episode one of Jurassic Park. But yeah. finally, Ray Arnold is convinced to, to shut down the system. He says, hold on to your butts, as you just said, one of those epic famous lines. <laughs> and lo and behold, we see a tiny little screen appear on a computer and yeah. it worked. Hey! It worked. They're turning themselves back on. But... uh. Every all the all the power is still off, and so Arnold realizes, okay, well, we it, the shutdown probably tripped the circuit breakers. Uh, I just have to turn that back on. There's a little spot on the other side of the um, what do you say? O other side of the compound from where they're at in the control center. He says three minutes, and I can have the power back on in the entire park. And Hammond goes, now just to be safe, I want everyone in the emergency bunker until Mr. Arnold comes back and the computer's back on its feet again. We're really in it now. We sure are. But first, we have to cut back to Dr. Grant and the kids because they're still wandering around out there in Isla Nublar. And this is a great moment because we get to see more dinosaurs. Now, Ben, what do you know about Gallimimus? Gallimimus. They seem very much like they like they would have served kind of the, the niche of like modern day gazelle. Hmm. Uh, if we're looking at like a, a, an ecosystem in Africa or something like that of the modern age, there are predators like lions and cheetahs and those kinds of things. Let's say lions are somewhat analogous to T-Rex, cheetahs, jaguars, panthers, those kinds of things, somewhat analogous to raptors, <laughs> let's say. Gazelle would be like the Gallimimus. Would you say that that's accurate? It's not bad. I mean, their name, right, I'll take their it. name means chicken mimic. <laughs> And I mean, their morphology closely resembles that of modern day ostriches, flightless, large flightless birds. And they're also toothless. So they're toothless theropods. And oh, interesting. they also, because of their small heads relative to their body size and because of different morphologies in their jaw, actually I'm investigating this, but we think that they were herbivorous largely or at least omnivorous. So mm. even though we think of theropods as all being carnivorous, they were initially, but later on, some of them secondarily evolved plant-eating abilities. So Interesting. ornithomimid dinosaurs, including Gallimimus, the bird mimics, 
were probably at least eating plants some of the time. But they were very fleet mm. of foot, very long-legged. And actually, they share a pretty recent common ancestor with tyrannosaurs. So wow. the closest kind of major group of theropods to tyrannosaurs are probably ornithomimosaurs. Interesting. So something it, something just caused one group to have a, a taste for meats and the other to have <laughs> a taste for mostly veggies and maybe some meats. Yeah, exactly. And now we have... <laughs> These two relatives colliding here because these Gallimimus flock over and, you know, Tim's trying to recall who these are. They're, uh, they're Gala, uh, Gallimimus. You know, Dr. Grant's really happy <laughs> about that. And he's like, look at them. Uniform direction changes. Just like a flock of bird evading a predator. And turns out they're flocking this way. So they're in the stampede. Yeah. They're all running amidst the legs of these very, very fast dinosaurs, just desperately trying to reach any kind of obstacle that they can hide behind. And they reach mm -hmm. this little log. They duck out of the way as the Gallimimus run through. And in the making of, as they're figuring out how to animate this scene, there's a hilarious, hilarious moment where they have a bunch of the crew running around in the parking lot with their arms held up like dinosaurs, <laughs> mimicking this scene so they can get a sense of how to kind of block it. And yeah. the one guy like trips and falls over and kicks his leg as if he's just falling yeah. over. It's so funny. Uh, it just looks it's like amazing. a blast. But um, Yeah, I love it. I can't recommend to our listeners, I can't recommend enough the making of Jurassic Park documentary hosted by James Earl Jones. It's, it's just a delight. Now, Ben, I, I know that we're kind of running short on time, but I have another scientific question sure. for you from the scene. D do we know that dinosaurs moved in herds or in flocks like the Gallimimus do in this moment? We had an earlier moment in this movie where Dr. Grant sees uh, sauropods and what look like hadrosaurs uh, moving in herds. And mm -hmm. he goes, oh, they did move in herds. Do we know that dinosaurs did move in herds or at least some species? So what I'm going to do here, David, is I'm going to mostly punt on this question because it's so rich that it Fair deserves enough. a full conversation. But I'll uh -huh. sum it up by saying some of them probably did, but the evidence is surprisingly thin. And it doesn't have uh, to do with uh -huh. whether they did or not. It has to do with figuring out if they did and how difficult that is in the fossil record. Uh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Because it would be, I assume, very rare to find an entire herd of dinosaurs fossilized all at the yeah, same time. Yeah, but moment. if you did, <laughs> if you did, could you know that they were living together and moving together? Or did they just die together? Yeah. Because Ooh, you have death assemblages that happen all the time where mm -hmm. there's a disaster or there's a drought and everyone's in the little riverbed and suddenly the river floods and now you have a group of 40 dinosaurs together all dead. And you're like, oh, it was a herd. Well, maybe they were just thirsty. So yeah. these are the pitfalls of the fossil record. Let's get into it another time because, ooh, boy, is that a good conversation to have later. Yeah, okay, excellent. We'll, we'll, we'll keep it going. Um, join us next time for that conversation. Um, so, yes, we, we, the Gallimimus are flocking around. The T-Rex is chasing them. The T-Rex gets one. And we have a funny moment where Tim is just like, look how much blood. And then they, they run yeah, off. And I bet you never look at birds the same way again. So in this yeah. scene, we have multiple dinosaur bird connection references yet again, where the movie goes up yeah. out of its way to do this. We're flock really hammering like a flock of birds evading a predator. And then we have Dr. Grant saying, bet you never look at birds the same way with the T-Rex eviscerating the Gallimimus. And yeah, it yes. pops out of the trees. They didn't know it was behind it. So that was a pretty cool scene. It was a great moment of yeah. ambush from the T-Rex, which would have no chance of catching the fleet Gallimimus in a straight up run. 
That's right. Also, this is the first time we see the Tyrannosaurus Rex in daylight. And that is notable because a lot of the T-Rex was kind of hidden by darkness and rain. And they and they sort of did that on, intentionally because they knew the CGI and the effects mm-hmm. were, were going to look better if there's shadows and other things going on that's kind of covering the fact that the technology was from 1993. It was still developing and still getting better. But this moment looks amazing. The Gallimimus all look great. Yeah. The T-Rex looks awesome. It just, it really works. And even today, re-watching this movie, it holds up, man. This movie is astoundingly good at making sure a film that is as old as I am looks great, just like I still do. So <laughs> you're, you're getting better and better with age. <laughs> 93 was a like fine, a fine wine. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I've got to say that like... um. I think that the, as we talked about, the initial Brachiosaurus scene is the one that holds up the least well in the entire movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I pretty much think that this scene looks straight up real. I yeah. mean, it looks it fantastic, looks awesome. and all the movements look so natural and smooth. And yeah, it's really you know well the way done. the T Rex shakes the Gallimimus is just like a dog with a rag doll. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, it's pretty. It's just so naturalistic looks like a documentary um yeah so anyway it's hard great stuff. it's a hardcore moment yeah. for sure yeah so so yeah so next we cut back to the the other group our, our our other group of heroes uh dr sattler is pacing around going something has gone wrong they're still waiting for ray arnold to come yeah, back he's taking way after too long turning here. the power on and they're getting worried and hammond has this great line where he goes this is just a delay all major theme parks have delays when they opened disneyland in 1956 nothing worked and dr malcolm goes yeah but john if the pirates of the caribbean ride breaks down the pirates don't eat the tourists <laughs> which i have to say i've i've been doing a deep dive into pirate history and i don't think that we can say that pirates definitely Whoa. would not have eaten tourists because you never know okay when you're out on the open seas for long enough Sometimes things start sounding delicious when you just have no other option. Wow. Okay. So anyway, <laughs> yeah. From- Doctor Sattler's like, I can't wait anymore. Something went wrong. Blah blah blah. Muldoon's like, Well, we'll go together. Um. And Hammond has a moment here, where he, despite being an old man with kind of a limp, insists that it should really be him going and not Doctor Sattler. And Ellie mm-hmm. shuts that shit write down yeah it's it's fantastic he he says something like oh you know it should really be me going and ellie's like why and he's like well because i'm a, and you're uh uh and she's like we can discuss sexism in survival situations when i get back just take me through this step by step i'm on channel two and she rushes out yeah and i love she's i also fantastic. i love that for multiple <laughs> reasons and for the obvious reasons of just like calling him out, but also we'll discuss this when I get back. Not, not if I get back, when I get back, we'll fucking yeah. talk about this Hammond. And, <laughs> and also I just, I love that I'm on channel two. It's just like, yeah. Uh, and that's end of discussion. Exactly. It's, it's fantastic. So then Ellie and Muldoon head off towards, uh, the, the, I'm not exactly sure what area they're going to. It's like a, a power building something like mm-hmm. that let's say yeah <laughs> but as they're heading over there they pass by the velociraptor paddock and uh-oh there's a big hole in the fence of the velociraptor paddock. yes so and this now is where know... some sound effect comes back it's the one from the beginning of the movie where they look mm-hmm. at that and it goes 
and it's a fantastic it's effect. So yeah. Great. yeah. And Muldoon is a, has a very grave look on his face and he adjusts his mm-hmm. hat and there's sweat beating. He goes, some rap defenses. And he's just like <laughs> grumbling to himself about how fucked this is. <laughs> yeah. It see it really does seem like they, they, they do a good job of making sure the audience recognizes that Muldoon is afraid of nothing on this <laughs> island except for the Velociraptors. Yeah. Like he's he has a run in with the T Rex and he smiles afterwards. And the only thing he is nervous about is, oh, God, the raptors. I think you could probably watch this movie as many times as I have and still not know quite what he's saying there. But oh, yeah. all he's just like, <laughs> the raptor fences. And yeah. It's nothing good. <laughs> oh, man. Nothing good. So then Ellie goes, okay, I can see the shed from here. We can make it re- if we run. And Muldoon goes, no. We can't. we can't. Why not? Because we're being hunted. Oh, God. In the bushes, straight ahead. It's all right. Like hell it is. Run towards the shed. I've got her. Ellie hesitates. Go! Now! (laughs) (laughs) So she makes a break for it. And she does some really (laughs) neat parkour. She swings on the tree branch. She does kind of trip on uh, one of the logs a little bit. But otherwise, she makes it through the fence successfully and... She gets into the building. Yeah. And then she's in and she's asking, she's shouting out, calling out for Mr. Arnold and he is not responding. So she calls Hammond on the radio and he's like, Hey, you know, where am I going? And they're basically say, follow the main cable. You'll, well, Malcolm you'll get says to where that, you're trying to go. Hammond doesn't want to take Malcolm's help with this. Cause he still hates Malcolm. He's like, I, yeah, know, how he to, I know how to read a schematic. still even in these moments there's there's fun character back and forth they really do a great job of making sure these characters are are still having this like really kind of sense of fun and and wit and everything going on absolutely it's it's great yeah (laughs) so next we're back with dr grant and lex and tim and they've just come out of the jungle and they see the gigantic perimeter fence which is which is the perimeter of the i guess the the area where people are inside of the park mm-hmm. um compared to where the dinosaur habitats are and grant throws a tree branch against the fence and nothing happens so the power's off it's an electrified fence but it seems off so they start climbing up it well before he, before they climb up it he uh, he puts his hands around the the, oh, yeah. the fence grabs it and <laughs> pretends like he's getting shocked. He goes, oh, and, yeah, and, and the, uh, kids scream. the kids freak out. And then he turns around and just smiles at them. So he's going full dad mode here. It's so good. It's so good. And again, he's having fun with these kids. Not something we would have expected based on his first interaction with a child at the beginning of this movie. No, where he just departure. explains how a raptor would have spilled its guts. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, so anyway, then, yes, they uh, do start climbing up. <laughs> they start climbing up and then we have a bit of a, a cutting back and forth, back and forth. Because now, suddenly, Ellie is trying to turn on the power. And as she's trying to do that... Dr. Grant, Lex, and Tim are climbing the electrified fence that has 10,000 volts. And they're doing it with alacrity in dispatch because in the distance they hear <laughs> they hear the T-Rex's bellow and that definitely exactly. prompts them to get up that fence as fast as they can. Yeah, that's right. 
So then we're cutting back to Dr. Sattler inside of the power building and she's going around. She's talking to Hammond and Malcolm. They, they help her find her spot. Um, they have a whole kind of back and forth about like, okay, you have to press this button, flip this switch, do this in this order, blah, blah, blah. And we keep cutting back to Dr. Grant and the kids climbing down the fence now and then dr grant is on the ground lex is on the ground tim's still on the fence doc then cut back to dr sattler she's <laughs> finishing up pressing all the buttons it's a great moment of, of tension because suddenly for the first time in this movie we're tense not because of a dinosaur but because of humans doing things at yeah, the same moment and i mean so tim is really struggling to climb down this tree and you can see mm-hmm. that as dr sattler is manually turning the power onto the different sections of the park one by one, the camera cuts down to perimeter fence, which is down by the bottom. So mm-hmm. in classic suspense movie, kind of Mission Impossible style, she's flipping the switches for all of these things one by one, and Tim better get off that fence before she hits that perimeter fence. Exactly. And so we cut back to him, and he's like, okay, on three, I'll get off. One, two... <laughs> And then suddenly the power's on and he gets like blown off the fence. <laughs> I don't know what 10,000 volts does to an 11 year old, but I don't think in reality he probably would have survived. <laughs> so there was an interesting, I've, I was trying to look into this, David, and unfortunately I don't have this top of mind because it was way back when we first rewatched the film. But <laughs> yeah, weeks ago when we thought we could do this in one episode. <laughs> like voltage is electric potential and apparently... High, higher voltage can be easier to survive than lower voltage under certain situations. Huh. Because That's it's a matter of, you know, how much is actually flowing through you at a given time and it's not all created equal. So we huh. can get into that another time before I embarrass myself with my lack of electrical knowledge. But <laughs> the bottom line is he probably wouldn't have survived, but it's maybe v- vaguely within the realm of possibility if circumstances were very specific but nonetheless tim the human crash test dummy he goes flying off this (laughs) fence his hair sticking straight up in the air and he's not breathing and on that cliffhanger this is future ben popping back in with the ending voiceover as promised this sparks the end of our clean audio now the audio for the rest of the episode wasn't necessarily beyond repair but it would take a lot of work that we can't really devote to the edit at the moment. So perhaps another time later on in the future, we'll be able to reconstruct that and release it as kind of a lost episode, or we can just record it separately as a mini beast on the Raptors in the Kitchen iconic scene to come. But if you'd like to know what happens to Tim and the rest of the characters to the end of this film, of course, you should watch it, especially if you haven't before. Can't recommend it highly enough. And on the horizon, we're gonna bring you a totally silly movie a one-and-done episode so we can get streamlined, get quick, and have a lot of fun with a movie that's more on the comedic side of things and definitely not as close to science fiction as Jurassic Park was. So we hope you've enjoyed our journey through Jurassic Park. Of course, Jurassic Park will come up all the time in our future. And take care, everyone. We'll see you next time.